0: Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is the Incredible Two Headed Podcast. It's surprising it took like a year and a half for that to happen, especially since it like, it's illegal to record somebody without their knowledge here in, in California <laughs> and other states.
1: Well, they're not actually, you know how things are, how are and have been for the past year and a half. No one's actually like following the rules. I mean, it, it was something I was thinking about while I was writing something about Army of the Dead. It's like, it's like a perfect time there's not as much gore as there could be in that movie, and it's a shame because he really could have just gone for it. Because the MPAA has totally disappeared. Like even now, if they wanted to, like put out, um, you know, an uncut version of the one of the films that we were discussing um, today you know the Devils, they could yeah. get away with it the mpaa wouldn't say boo cuz they're they've essentially packed up and like gone fishing <laughs> they're nowhere to be seen you can get away with so much more but violence nudity yeah uh, language in film right now well it, it's, it's like open season for all of that stuff right now
0: especially on netflix which doesn't have to abide is it as subscription it doesn't have to necessarily abide by the FCC standards of broadcast and, like, they can pretty much release whatever they want. <laughs> they don't need need to say, like, oh, we, we have to make this PG-13 with the MPAA. They can do whatever they want. Exactly. I, I have a feeling if Army of the Dead had been made for, say, Amazon or even now HBO Max, it would have been a lot gorier. I, I feel like Netflix is a bit more skittish. They kind of have a an upper level of what they'll allow in terms of uh, violence or gore or anything like that you yeah. know they they do get some movies they had an infomaniac for a while oh but, yeah but then you look at like their original stuff that they make and it does seem like they're they're trying not to be too provocative
2: mm-hmm. like
0: I, I was talking about this with a friend um their netflix original series based on lock and key and now sweet tooth we started sweet tooth Mm -hmm. I haven't read Sweet Tooth, but people are saying that it's been really toned down from the comics and Lock and Key was very toned down as well and made it much more family friendly when it was kind of a mature comic book to start with. And
1: Yeah, you know, it, it, it also opens up the appeal, you know, like, for example, a good example of this is like Possessor, like Possessor, when it was on Amazon, it was only the edited version. And yeah, you know, I actually w- went through wrote down like the specific cuts that they did. And, I mean, there's still quite a lot of violence in it and ugliness and nudity. There's mostly female nudity, as usual, and um, the violence itself was you know, the really h- the most harsh parts of it were gone. So yeah, I agree with you on the Amazon thing. I think they really shy away from like graphic nudity and graphic violence, but um, I know that, and maybe it's just the way he couched it. Um, Cause I watched a lot of the BTS stuff for, um, for Army of the Dead for this thing I'm writing. And <laughs> he, his idea was to put like a, a giant, a, a basically a nude male zombie with, as he put it, uh, Well, you know, a huge member, basically giant. I've heard the story. Giant zombie dong, and (laughs) with a bite in it, of course, because that—that's really what Zack Snyder is. I don't know if people know this. He's really that guy who who would put a a naked zombie with a giant zombie penis, and he would have a bite in it. That's, that's really yeah. the essence of Zack Snyder, and I don't think pe- enough people recognize it. He, most of his fans think of him like as Orson Welles of comic book movies. He, he's not that highbrow.
0: No, no. he's He seems to me a little bit more, I mean, he's more of a like kind of a brutalist Michael Bay in a way. Yeah, uh, like yeah, I, 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 there's a lot of similarity. I think he's more in love with kind of this the the the, the brutalist nature of comic books. The certainly the more fascist, fascist yes. elements of comic books in a way that like, well, we're not talking about Zack Snyder today. And like, people, you know, people talk about him all over the place. I tend to think at his best, he's okay. I've liked a couple of his movies. I, I think he completely misunderstands the appeal in a certain or or what is meant to be the appeal of some of these characters that he's portraying um yeah I I I don't I don't think I've ever considered him particularly highbrow particularly when you see how often like his music choices like how often he uses hallelujah and yeah um, yeah he's a corny corny guy
1: No, no. And that's the thing. That's when I say he's not highbrow, that's actually the perfect way to describe him is he's corn, he's cornball. He really is. And, and he's got the bro sense of humor. He's, he's just not an intellectual filmmaker, like say someone like Ken Russell or Michael Powell and Pressburg. Um, he, He just, he just doesn't get it. He has like the, he, Philosophically, in film, he the farthest he's progressed is Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth.
0: I like Superman. I'm a big Superman fan. I like the the old '80s movies, uh, the comic books when they're done well. He people always talk about him as a as a hard character to write for because he's so, supposed to be so noble and so good. But it's just that leads to so many people kind of misunderstanding or saying like, "Now oh, we want to poke holes in in Superman's nobility when." he's supposed to be kind of a hopeful character and he works best when he's being humane not when he's just a big overpowered fist like he, he basically turned superman into batman and superman started as almost the opposite batman superman's first villains were greedy landowners slum lords yeah. um evil robber barons like lex Luthor. you know it, he, he's a he's a immigrant farm worker like he's a socialist hero almost and he He basically just turns him into into uh outer space batman
1: you know my favorite film of his is probably dawn of the dead you know 300 was kind of kind of cool looking but you know looking back on it it's it's also kind of cornball and i think it's because he had um the advantage of of having like the james gunn uh really more cynical script and I've heard Scott Frank did some work on it as well but um, he had kind of that other sensibility that was a lot more cynical and and somewhat more intellectual uh, to kind of counterbalance his corniness and his his basicness <laughs> for lack of a better wor- word to say because he's kind of basic
2: yeah he, yeah he really
1: I think he has aspirations. Like he would really like to be, uh, you know, looked on as someone like Orson Welles or, you know, I, I guess Orson Welles is probably as far as he would go into like, you know, like the big Tony filmmakers. He would like to be like that. And he's a very talented cinematographer and, and uh, di- director of photography um, or, you um, even just camera op, he's really he's really talent. That's where his real talents lie is with actually running the camera, and cinematography. I think honestly, he's very he's very good, and he's that's where most of his creativity lies. The problem is with him thinking that, you know, his his ideas about um, cinema are more progressive than they actually are.
0: You're right. Like his his imagery, like he's 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 good at composing a shot, but most of the time he's working off of the comic books as storyboards. So he's kind of just imitating. And when it works, it works. It's fine. I, I mean, I, I haven't seen his newest iteration of the Justice League. I didn't really like any of his DCU stuff. Um, I liked Dawn of the Dead when he came out. I really liked... I even like 300. And while I haven't revisited it in a very long time, mm-hmm. I always kind of thought that his presentation of that material worked because especially in the framing of the movie, it's meant to be a myth that these people are handing down about themselves. So of course, it would be kind of overblown and taken to excess just to make them look as mythic and legendary as possible. So like I kind of like
1: glamorous.
0: Yeah, I thought there was a a fairly good in movie explanation for why the movie was presented in that way and so I I, but I haven't revisited it maybe now in light of the last decade and certainly the last like four or five years I would think differently about its political messages and and overtones Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I know and then it was like Watchmen is the the biggest case I've ever seen of somebody hyper accurately representing and telling a story while completely missing the point yeah (laughs) I left the theaters thinking like ah, that's about the best we're gonna get of Watchmen so it was okay but just kind of like the more I thought of it I'm like man like everything about it like that's exactly what happened in the book but it's told completely in the wrong way
1: it's the tone that he's taking and the the intent of like how he's funneling the story more towards like a fascist representation
0: yeah he's he's and maybe
1: not Okay, maybe not fascist, but certainly more right wing.
0: Yeah, he's, he's, I am sure Zack Snyder thinks Rorschach is the hero of that book. I I think he thinks what Rorschach is doing is is great. And he is like his, he, he is to be commended when, you know, clearly, it's complicated the way Alan Moore presents him because he does do things that you could objectively call morally upstanding more so in some cases than the other characters but he's also he's also crazy and has no no judgment and is completely too brutal um so it is complicated in the books but you're not meant to idolize him
1: exactly well also he really like made the comedian look like a hero as well and you know considering what he was doing you know basically like shooting people in Vietnam, (laughs) you know, uh, it it was, it it looked so beautiful. And you just, you're just like, you're meant to say, yeah, you're getting them for America. And it's like, no, even I who have only a very surface level understanding of Watchmen, I went, I don't think
2: that's what that means. (laughs)
0: No, I, I I used to be. I still am to a point like a humongous Alan Moore fan. I read Watchmen when I was sixteen, and for until my thirties, I read that book just about once a year. Yeah, I mean, I, I I still like Alan Moore, but I I I've kind of my opinions have changed about some of the things about him. But he has said some funny thing in the in the past that he has said that it. It seems like the entire comics industry and superheroes in general took the wrong lessons like like they were inspired by him and Frank Miller just being in a bad mood in the 80s and
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to laugh at that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you can totally see it because it does. It is like that deconstruction like of of superheroes has has uh, kind of overtaken the whole uh, genre. But hey, we're not here to talk about superhero movies or, or Zack Snyder. Um, mm-hmm. we're here to talk about well, you know, I didn't I didn't come up with a, a special title for this. <laughs> our theme is is nuns. And then I kind of had like a humorous idea of like, oh, it's a nunsploitation episode. But really, it's not nuns. <laughs> that's not what the these movies are. Like these are yeah. kind of like I, I think in a way you can look at at one of the movies, you can look at your choice, The Devils, as kind of a non sexploitation movie if you're not paying attention. Yeah. Uh, certainly some reviews at the time certainly treated it that way. And mm-hmm. I thought it would be kind of funny to pair it with my choice, Black Narcissist, because it's such a, <laughs> there's so, so much polar opposites in while still exploring similar themes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So anyway, yeah, we're talking nuns. We're talking Black Narcissists. And we're talking The Devils. Why don't we just take like a quick break, uh, listen to the trailer for one of these films we'll be back to talk about Black Narcissists.
2: This is the story of a high endeavour that tried and tested a woman in the remote background of Asia. The story of a prince and a beggar maid and of a nun who gave up her vows. Why should we want to keep you here against your will? Because you're all jealous of me.
1: Especially
2: you. The clash of strong personalities. I understood you wanted to see me. We want to talk to you on business.
0: I suppose you want to talk to me on anything else. Sorry.
2: I don't know why you are being so rude to me, Mr. Dean. I have to talk business with you, whether I like it or not. The contrast of present peace and self-denial with the rich memories of the full years that have passed. They renounced the world of men, but found that the world was not to be denied.
1: I gave up my vows. I finished with them up there.
2: I see. I love you. I had to have the young general. I couldn't turn out the holy man. I couldn't stop the wind from blowing and the air from being as clear as crystal. And I couldn't hide the mountain.
1: I told you it was no place to put a nunnery. It's something in the atmosphere that makes everything seem exaggerated. Don't you understand? No.
0: Adapted from the novel of the same name, Black Narcissus is a 1947 British film written and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, known collectively as The Archers. The film tells the story of a small group of Anglican nuns as they attempt to establish a new convent in India in an empty palace previously used to house the Rajah's harem. The group of nuns encounter plenty of roadblocks, both external and internal, as the locals are indifferent to their efforts and the clear air and vertiginous views bring up buried memories and emotions. Now, this was, I believe, the first film I'd ever seen from Powell and Pressburger. I certainly haven't seen everything I've, I've of theirs, but I've watched a lot more now. And when I saw this, it, it really blew me away. There, were, there was something about it that kind of like I found very moving on almost an elemental level. It was, I used to call it painterly because it left me with like the impression that it was a piece of work that had been carefully and intentionally put together uh, down to every detail, like the use of color, the sound, the acting, the backdrops. It was kind of unlike anything I not like unlike anything I'd ever seen, but it was certainly not something I expected from this era of filmmaking. It was I mean, it was kind of new to me at the time. Um, Watching it now for the first time in about a decade and I've watched it twice recently. I have a few more complicated emotions about it. it it's it's a different lens i'm watching the movie through but i i still think it's it's a pretty powerful piece of work that maybe is a little bit unintentionally well not unintentionally because they, they would have known what they were doing at the time but a little bit more problematic these days but um what about you have you seen this before or what's your what's your history with the movie
1: well i mean you know um I'm more of like an admirer of Powell Pressburger in theory than I am like a person who's watched everything that they've done. It's one of those movies that, uh, you know, I've kind of always heard, wow, it's so beautiful. You've got to see it. And I'm like, okay, what's it about? Nuns. Uh. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it's going a little further down on my my watch list after some zombie movies i sorry i i guess i'm crass in that way you know oh,
0: i'm completely the same way
1: and like you know like a lot of art films like have i have i watched ordet no <laughs> i've read a lot about it but you know but have i seen come and see
0: yes well i i am the same way this i like powell and pressburger a lot uh, but there is, there is something about this type of movie that does feel at times a little bit like homework. And I don't yeah. mean that, like, while I'm watching it, I don't feel that while I'm watching it. But when I think about it, it feels like, well, that's not going to be as exciting as this movie that I'm probably going to hate, but I'm still want to see. But like, like we were talking in the intro about Army of the Dead, it's just like, I knew Army of the Dead was going to be a movie that I didn't love, but I was still like, it was bright and colorful and had lots of action and it, it promised some zombies and some cool kills and so i was like oh, i'd rather watch this than whatever but then you know then i, I finished the movie and of course it's a much more fulfilling experience you know I, I i feel better getting out of the end of black narcissist than necessarily army of the dead exactly so i i get that i, I I appreciate and I love a lot of like art, art films, I love a lot of foreign films, I love a lot of serious cinema, but my heart is always with kind of the <laughs> the less reputable fare.
1: Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, like I watch a lot of really super serious movies, but you know, just certain movies, for whatever reason, I haven't gotten around to. And yeah, a lot of it has to, you know, it's a lot of the classic like master cinema, like I wanna watch some bazoo, you know, Tarkovsky. Uh, hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right. But have I done it yet? No.
0: <laughs> My friend Carlos is doing a show. Uh, he's doing a well. die left for film podcast, and what he's doing now is he's going through the 1001 movies you must see before you die list. Mm-hmm. And I've been on that a, a bunch of times, and it it's fun because it does sometimes give me a reason to watch these movies that I've been meaning to for a long time that i i just wouldn't necessarily make myself sit down and watch because um well like recently i did five antonioni films Mm -hmm. and i loved them all well one of them i didn't quite love but i i thought they were great i was like incredibly moved and and wowed by these movies but i still if he hadn't brought me you know brought me this concept for his show or this list of films i'd i'd still just be watching you know more Ted V. Michaels or Sam Raimi, or I'd just be watching the, the kind of trash cinema that I've been spending my time watching all my life. <laughs>
1: yeah, no. So I totally understand. But, and that's kind of been the more of the type of movie it's been for me. Like, you know, with uh, Michael Powell, you know, the first thing I'm going to gravitate to is Peeping Tom.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: Why? Because it's a horror movie. So yeah. Yeah. Is, is it something crass in my soul, I suppose?
0: No, no. I mean, I definitely not. From what I from what I know of you and your, your viewing, I mean, you're not somebody who's just coming to the movies for dumb entertainment. You are, you know, finding things to like in these things, which is, I think, the way that we both look at it, that, you know, we appreciate the art house cinema. We appreciate these films. Some of my, I mean, they, they would be the movies I consider my favorites in some cases. And yet, you know, we, we can also appreciate the artistry that goes into something that other people would just dismiss as trash. And I just dismissed it as trash earlier, but you know what I, I think, I think we're on the same page. Yeah. So this is, this is the first time you've seen this movie then? Yep. Okay. Well, um, I guess kind of quick overview that we can get into, you know, the micro in a minute, but on a macro level, what did you think of the film?
1: You know, it's going to sound like it's going to sound, <laughs> It's going to sound so cliched, but, you know, it's really just gorgeous. I mean, it, it is, you know, people. Oh, okay. That's how, you know, people talk, talk about it. You know, that what, a you know, what a beautiful looking film it is. And, you know, I can't really, I can't disagree. Everybody's right. You know, I mean, Powell and Pressburger. I mean, you know, in, in the stuff that I've seen just of Powell's own work just a richness and a beauty to to the image is is you know obviously very important to them just kind of a it, it's, it's really like a kind of a cornerstone of their own style just something that's that beautiful
0: I completely agree like the the close-ups in this movie the backdrop I mean it's shot I think completely on a set or almost completely on a set I mean they certainly did not go to the Himalayas for any of this movie.
1: Oh no, that that's I mean in, at the, that point in history, you know, one yeah, they wouldn't be location shooting in the Himalayas. It would be way too difficult and too expensive and dangerous. Yeah, I mean the the tendency was to create everything on a set. It was sounds it was the time of the sound stage.
0: Oh yeah, and uh, of course, uh, I'm not sure I didn't see which one this was filmed at, but I mean England has some massive massive world famous sound stages, but i I do love i think they accomplish a lot with matte paintings in this mm-hmm. and I, I, Matte painting's kind of a lost art these days, but they they just look really as we keep saying gorgeous mm-hmm. the views, especially that that bell that they chime every hour and it's right there right on the cliff, and you get those upper shots of it, and it's a painting, but it's still like so. such a striking image
1: yeah and when you say it's a lost art it really is because you know i think you know these days the tendency is for you know cgi everything motion capture uh you know just all the technological toys that filmmakers have and that, you know, it's very, it's kind of rare that people go back to, you know, practical effects and doing, you know, effects in camera. I think that, you know, it's maybe something that somebody should try and and bring back or rediscover under certain circumstances because I think it would really blow people's minds because they're used to just like the cheesiness of CGI.
0: Well, yeah, I think I think it's probably going to be gone for the most part. Unless it's a stylistic choice, they're all going to... It's going to be digital anyway. It's just so easy now to do photorealistic or to just, like, create an environment. I mean, look at all the Marvel stuff. Or, it, it, like, Mandalorian, the stuff Disney Plus is doing, where it's just, like, everything there is shot on a soundstage. <laughs> like, even though it yeah. looks convincingly like he's out in the middle of a desert or they're on a rock rocky hill. It, no, it's a soundstage with those, like, LCD monitors behind them and it looks pretty convincing I mean maybe it won't in five years once our eyes get used to it but Mm -hmm. I I think this type of painting I just I can't see anybody really putting the work into it I just don't think it's going to be worth it for most studios. but well you
1: you never know there's there might be that stylist out there and I'm on their side because Yeah. um, yeah I mean that's the problem with CGI and photorealism is that eventually we see how fake it is whereas something like the the shots in black narcissus are never really going to look fake because they have a realistic aspect to it yeah it's a painting but somebody actually painted that painting it's a physical reality so your eyes you know might register it oh it's a painting but it's still real if that makes sense
0: it, it does
1: whereas like something that's just totally digitally created, at a certain point, your mind is gonna say, yeah, it's fake.
0: I also believe, cause I, I'm looking right now, like I just had up on my screen, um, some of my black narcissist, like little quote unquote research I was doing before we got on the call. Mm-hmm. And I can see like right underneath the zoom window, one of the paintings, a painting of the um, the palace on the cliff mm-hmm. and all of the mountains behind it. And I'm just looking at it and thinking, like, it's clearly a painting. like there's nothing in it that looks incredibly real, but it it's so evocative in a way that a photorealistic representation would not necessarily be. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit more soul in it, a little bit more of the artistic intent than if it was just like, this is the background, and not to say that digital artists aren't artists. I'm just saying that there's something about it that i I find very pleasing I just keep I'm like staring at it while we're talking like it's like it's really cool looking
1: well no that that, then that's kind of my point is I think the difference is is that digital at least to our minds our eyes and our minds at this point uh, doesn't have a real that realistic quality that the fact that somebody did physically paint that lends it a realism to our eyes and our brains that digital doesn't have I think that's the difference is it it's not just it's not the beauty it's the fact that it is It is a literal physical reality versus something that was created by a computer
0: I totally agree so getting into the into the film itself and its themes and messages I on these last this last viewing or these last two viewings I just did for this podcast I, I spent a lot of time trying to unpack the colonialist themes in it Mm -hmm. like the whole point of the movie in a way is about these people going to a foreign land trying to exert control not understanding it like the land at all and finding themselves lost and finding themselves uh, impacted and affected by their environment in a way that they didn't foresee Mm -hmm. and that's that's kind of a in a way an anti-colonialist view but it's still told through the eyes of a a society that was at the time colonizing uh india i think this movie came out just a couple of months before or after uh oh okay i'm looking at it, it was released a few months before india achieved independence from britain mm-hmm. and so it still does have kind of a problematic air to it that it's being told by these people they're they're kind of exoticizing india in a in a A slightly fetishistic way, it certainly is a problem that of all of the Indian cast or Indian characters in the movie, only one person is, is, you know, from that era, area, Sabu, Sabu is in this movie, but everybody else is is British in makeup, like Gene Simmons and uh, the general is, I can't remember his name, but he's a British actor. There are some extras, but they were just basically grabbed, they were dock workers in London.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
0: it's kind of complicated and I'm not sure if I'm like the person that's going to parse this (laughs) but uh I it it did make it make it a little bit uneasy my watch my viewing this time with that in mind which I don't think would have been on my mind the first time I watched it it's really hilarious to me that May Halat as Angu Aya the caretaker of the palace Mm -hmm. she's it's not even like convincing cultural appropriation. She's putting on the thickest cockney accent for this character. <laughs> it's so over the top that I'm not, I'm not sure what it, what it's meant to represent unless it's just kind of like, maybe it's because of the, the British occupation in Northern India. Maybe that's just something that she picked up or maybe that's what they're trying to say. I, I don't think so. I think it's just what the actress was doing. It, yeah. It's a bizarre performance in this movie.
1: Well, you know, the, uh... You know, that, that's a problem, I think, with a lot of um, films from, a cert- from certain eras historically, particularly if they tried to go outside of their, their culture, you know, out- outside of the UK. They're gonna try, they're, I mean, they're gonna, you know, I mean, they're still even doing it today. I, this is a strange thing to bring into it, but Poseidon, the Wolfgang Peterson remake, of the Poseidon Adventure.
2: Oh, oh, yeah. Okay.
1: Wolfgang Peterson. I, I think he's German director. I'll, you'll laugh, but I was actually on this set and they have a lead character in it um, who's played by Mia Maestro and she is supposed to be Latina. And I'm pretty sure that she is not. And, you know, it's just something that happens a lot in Hollywood. Let me see. I could be, I could be wrong. I'm actually checking right now. Nope, she's Argentine. So at least she is Latina. But you know, she's probably meant to be Mexican. And it's because, you know, they're trying to stretch out of their boundaries and like, you know, tell different stories, but they really just don't have enough knowledge of like these other cultures to like really like do what's necessary, like cast actors from the culture or it, it's, they don't understand it.
0: Yeah. Well, and there's, there's certainly a, still a tendency. Well, we're, we're kind of reckoning with that over the past few years, it's become a bigger issue, which is great. I think it is being called out when people are not cast, uh, people that whose stories these are, are not, are not cast for the roles. Um mm-hmm. I think it's it's becoming, it's a bigger issue. I think it's happening less. There, there's more of an effort these days to cast people who would uh, know these stories. But there's still a tendency, not just in Hollywood, but everywhere, every filmmaking hub, to treat a, a culture as a monolith. Like, look at how many times, you know, Korean actors are playing uh, Japanese characters or,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, whatever. Like, we we kind of just treat, uh, like the whole, like that whole area is like, oh yeah, they, they're just Asian. That that's it. We don't, we're not, we like. Sorry. They don't
1: see it. Yeah, they don't see a difference between Korean, Japanese, Indonesian, you know, Pacific Islanders.
0: And the same can be said for, you know, like talking about uh, South America or Mexico. Like we just like casting agents or, or directors will just be like, well, that's close enough, right? Uh,
1: yeah. They they think they, they don't even know the difference that there's a difference between someone who's Hispanic who would be from Spain, you know, or Portugal in in Europe versus someone who's Latino who is from Central or South America, versus the difference between Central and South America and whoo there's a big difference they 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 just don't even see it
0: to kind of back out a little bit we are talking about like Stephen King in our in our pre record discussion you you just brought them up like briefly but this, this is maybe a weird way to get into it but I I do still feel that a writer can kind of write whatever they want but they have to be able to back up like back up what they're saying or they they have to be able to defend it like they can't just say I'm not saying like a writer should be devoid or, or should not be held accountable for what they write I'm just saying like people should not at that outset be constrained with what they can say and I I bring up Stephen King because Stephen King does this a lot where I think he he writes some things that maybe he shouldn't maybe he's not the right person as a as an older wealthy white man he's maybe not the person to write in that voice but I also don't kind of hold it against him that he wants to maybe explore something that isn't isn't his story but I do think like when it comes to a, 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 an adaptation, like a film adaptation, something that's going to reach a wider audience and it's gonna be seen by more people. And there, there, the, there is an increased pressure to kind of get that right. You know, I, I feel that like, certainly once it makes it to film, there should be input. Like it's so collaborative, there should be input, of course, from people who are, are living what he's trying to describe as a white man from New England. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm kind of like rambling here because I kind of lost the train of what I was going for. Um,
1: no, no. Yeah, I think I get what you're saying is basically that, you know, there obviously are people who are acknowledged masters in like their crafts, you know, like Stephen King. You can't really mess with him in writing. I mean, he's a he's a really good writer. I mean, he has you know the sales and the critical response to back and in the many decades of writing to back it up he's really good at it is he the best writer for every experience on earth of every different type of human being no that doesn't that doesn't make him any less of a masterful writer it just means that is he going to be able to uh, to realistically or or figuratively in in a way in a way that is respectful to different cultures maybe not yeah. you know and maybe there's maybe there's not any amount of research that's going to change that because he is a 70 year old white man he's from a different era he has certain, prejudices and, and when I say prejudices, I don't mean like he's racist or anything like that. He just has certain opinions that are pounded into his brain from the time he was a child that he is essentially not as progressive as we are today. And I think it kind of cuts to the heart of the black narcissist, Powell Pressburger thing is that obviously they're masterful filmmakers. Should they be making a movie about uh, that concerns the people who live in, the the native people of the Himalayas? Mm, Maybe not. (laughs) Because they don't understand it.
0: And that is, to its credit, that is kind of the movie's point, is that they don't understand it. Uh, But in, in that exploration of it, it still falls into the trap of kind of minimizing and exoticizing the locals.
2: Exactly.
0: I, it, it's shown in Mr. Dean. Mr. Dean, who lives am- among the locals in the Himalayas and is ingrained in that culture in a way, is still incredibly British and still mm-hmm. talks about them in kind of very patronizing um very patronizing terms where he says that they're hard workers and they don't like they're the men are men and he's just like I don't know it's this very uh, colonial view that like that that is even if you uh, appreciate a culture you're like oh but we'll we'll get them up to our level they're not quite at our level right Mm -hmm. it's um it's very outdated I don't I don't know, it, it is something that I, I don't think we can avoid talking about when talking about this movie nowadays in 2021. I also think it's something they are trying to address in the film itself. It's just like these days, it's so... I, I actually did like a, a lot of reading and kind of my head was swimming. And I'm like, I don't know what to make of this. I was trying to just kind of like unpack and untangle what I was feeling about the movie itself in those terms.
1: Well, no, I mean, it's... That's the thing is that they may have had good intentions. Like they're, they're not trying uh, overtly to, you know, be Orientalists or, um, or colonizers. But because of, and that it goes back to the Stephen King thing, because of their upbringing, because of the tr- social training that they have in their heads, whether they really believe in it or not, it, it, it's it's already there so there's going to be traces of it and there's going to be little prejudices and and misunderstandings of of the different culture or contempt on a certain level for it you know because there's there's a lack of understanding at a very basic level It's like I mean you know with when Stephen King writes books from the female perspective, I think he's actually, pretty successfully done that, which is amazing considering the generation he like grew up in. But there are certain things that if you're outside of a culture or gender or sexuality or uh, anything that you're just not gonna understand on a core level. Like I'm never gonna understand what it's like to be a white person a white Anglo-Saxon male fully. I'm probably never gonna like understand a lot of like what that is because I'm not a white Anglo-Saxon male. And then the reverse, a white Anglo-Saxon male isn't going to understand my experience fully either. They might understand it from an intellectual standpoint, maybe, but they're not gonna understand it from And I think it's where a lot of creativity and artistry comes from, from the the molecular level, the the cell level, from the level that it comes from, it's you, you know, right down to the genes in your DNA. That's who you are. You know, there's that learned experience that comes down, you know, for many generations that makes you that person of that culture there's something on a certain level that anyone is not going to get a, about anyone else's experience.
0: Uh, yeah, and I, I totally agree, but also in a way that, that I guess it kind of fits because this movie, like this movie isn't about India. This movie isn't about the those characters, um, the general, even the, Sabu who plays the young general who gets quite a bit of screen time in a story of his own, or even Gene Simmons as a uh, Um uh,
1: Yeah, and
0: about them they're, which is probably the worst thing about about how their representation plays is that they're basically window dressing but the movie is supposed to be about these, like these white religious repressed people coming to an air er- a place they don't understand trying to impose their values on everything and finding themselves completely and utterly lost which i think this movie is is in that way a statement on uh the british uh uh the british occupation of india it is you know a- about what the the their entire history in a way and it, i think the movie does come down on the side and like well we shouldn't have been there we shouldn't have been doing that But it's still like, it's still from a modern perspective fails on a couple of, in a couple of respects.
1: Yeah, you know, well, you know, and that's, that's the tough thing about like, you know, comparing a movie from that long ago to like current standards, you know, not only is it going to be something like, you know, just like the, the effects, like, you know, the painted backgrounds, it's also going to be you know, which a lot of people might find unrealistic versus, you know, their favorite CGI epic. It, you know, it, it's it's difficult to like hold a piece of art that was made in an entirely different time up to current standards in a certain way. Now, of course, there are certain things that like, you know, D.W. Griffith stuff, or, you know, Birth of a Nation or now, there there's certainly, you know, like the Nazi films, uh, like Triumph of the Will, that I think it's probably a lot more, a lot easier to like hold them to like certain standards of judgment of our current time. But, you know, they, they had the resources that they had, they had the thought patterns that they had. So, you know, I'm not really saying that it's bad, but yeah, it's certainly something that makes you feel uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, and maybe I've been putting a little bit more weight on it this for this episode or for the discussion so far because I, I agree that to a certain point, movies are, are products of their time. and I'm, I'm a guy who watched a lot of TCM when I had cable. I watch a lot of old black and white movies, and there is quite a bit of like quite a bit of stuff that I find clashes with my modern beliefs or the modern beliefs. Of our world, and I, I, I guess I, I'm. It's constantly something I'm I'm trying to reckon with, and I just felt like necessarily it doesn't need to be the end of the discussion about this movie. I just felt like it was important to uh, bring it up in our conversation.
1: Oh no, and I really appreciate that because you know it it really is like a sore spot, you know, particularly in casting. Uh, how you know the the whole brown face thing. It, it's yeah. just. Really disturbing that you know that you know that's why you know I've gone on on about it in writing before, but you know that's why a lot of really good actors either didn't have opportunities that they should have had, or you know like um, gosh, um, she's the she's the lady who played Yolanda in Selena. She was a woman. She spoke uh, several language several languages. She didn't have an accent, but she had to affect an accent and play maids constantly because that's what she was seen as. Oh yeah, it's it's really, you know. So you know, I can understand like you wanting to like that you feeling uncomfortable with it and wanting to like discuss it because you know, even though that might not have been you know. Uh, Lupe Ontiveros. I think she spoke five languages, no accent whatsoever. But if you watch her, she's all in most films, she's playing a maid of some kind and she's got an accent. And, and you know, she went with it because she had to. That's the only way she was going to be employed. You know, so I, I appreciate that you bringing it up. And I think it's important to note, certainly. But, you know, also the... Is that really what they were trying to do? No, they were working with the resources and the mindset that they had at the time.
0: Yeah, and like, well, part of what what makes me think this movie comes on the like comes down against colonialism? It's like there's a scene where they're they're teaching kids English,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, of course Sabu is in there, uh, the, the young general. And I keep mentioning Sabu. He's like because he's he was such a big star at the time. He would have been uh, like a big name, probably like the only uh, actor of Indian descent that anybody could name at this time. Like he he was in, uh, I think, the early version of the Jungle Book and a bunch of other stuff. But he's in there. and there, all the kids are being taught English. But the words that they've put on the blackboard, the things that they put on the blackboard, the words are in order gun, warship, bayonet and dagger, and they're just having the yeah. to repeat them all. and that's got to be a message, right? That <laughs> when I rewatched it, because I'd forgotten about that scene, but that that has to be a message that they're sending about what Eng, what England was doing in India.
1: Oh yeah, and you know, the, it it does go back to the point, you know, that that they may have totally been aware of it. And, you know, maybe in a certain respect, they were, they were playing to, you know, that they had a, me- a well-intentioned mens- message, but, you know, either there were certain things that they didn't recognize as being, offen- you know, offensive in a 21st century way. Well, I don't think that they put Gene Simmons in brownface intentionally to make a point. You know, I wouldn't go that far, but, you know they they had that on their mind. You know maybe they weren't able to express it in more than like a subtle way like that, but the intention was there. So I would agree.
0: Yeah. So the the, the movie itself, the the getting back to the plot, uh, Sister Clodagh is basically made the youngest mother superior in her order. They're sent to this. Uh, remote palace up in the Himalayas, um, where the Raja used to keep his harem. So there's all these paintings in the background of fa- fairly explicit sexual acts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we're we're told in the beginning that um, the mother superior does not see think that Sister Claudia is uh, is ready for this position, but she's been placed in charge of the the this new convent. There had been monks previously that could not make a go of it uh it like other people have come and and failed to kind of uh exert any order in this area so we get this small group it's sister Claudon, who is basically the lead it's uh deborah care sister ruth sister philippa sister honey um am i missing one i can't remember anyway we're going so it's a small group and they all have kind of kind of their own thing going on. They each get their little arcs. Um, and we see how the, movie, the the atmosphere is affecting them. They talk about how clear the air is and that you can see too far. And they all kind of like start to change a little bit. Sister Clodagh, we, we get a lot of um, flashbacks to her. Like she's in a, the, the reason that she became a nun basically, or, or one of the reasons is that she was in this failed romance with uh, this guy, those flashbacks I think are really fascinating because it, it's another like kind of sub theme to this movie is that we find out at the end that the romance was pretty much just on her level, her, her end, right? Like he, he kind of just like, isn't that caring? He's going to move away and like uh, follow his career. Yeah. And she's been interpreting this all as like romantic that we're, they're going to be married forever, which, which kind of runs parallel to what's going on with the nuns here where they're kind of like, they've come to this area, they're trying to exert their control. They're like, we're, we're going to change the people. We're going to help the people. And the people just don't care. Yeah. The only reason that they go there is because they're being paid by the general to, to go to the, the school or the um, uh, the pharmacy.
1: Yeah. They have to, basically, they're playing, like, kind of like, it, it's it's a parallel that kind of like the guy was probably just going playing along with, you know, what her ideas of their relationship as such was versus the nuns are, you know, doing kind of, they're doing kind of the same thing. They're, they're assuming that everybody's doing what they want, but they're just being humored essentially.
0: Yeah. Which comes to an end when, uh, Sister Honey, who is put in charge of the uh, the medicine, she's put in charge of like the the infirmary. She's treating the children. There's a dying child that comes, and there's nothing they can do. They they've been warned by Mister Dean. Mister Dean warns them is, that if anybody in who is seriously unwell comes for medical attention, they are not to do anything because it'll be misinterpreted if the person dies. And that's what she does. She she sends the mother home with castor oil saying it's medicine knowing that the child is going to die and yeah. when the child dies the villagers then assume that they've been killed by uh that the child was killed by the nuns that there was some sort of witchcraft is how i think mr dean says it yeah that 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 kind of is the turning point where things really start to fall apart like people start stop coming to the uh the convent they there's they're told not that they shouldn't leave. They shouldn't go into the village or actually Mr. Dean tells them they should leave entirely before uh, things get too bad. Like there's, I think it's, the implication is that the villagers probably would uh, it, it, like seek some sort of revenge or punishment for the, the death. Yeah. Who else we got? So, so sister Philippa, uh, what she does, she, she plants an entire flower garden instead of vegetables Mm-hmm. so they're going to have no food and she seems to have like no memory of doing it like she just talks about how she was just like looking out into the views and remembering her childhood mm. there, there's a lot of other there's a lot of other themes in this about kind of memory or wanting to f- revisit the past or uh, uh, fix the past or make up for some past mistake which i think i think also plays into the anti-colonial view of this movie um,
1: yeah well and also it's kind of um i see it as them in is individuals trying to live in the past yes just really like literally not literally but well what well, kind of literally would like especially with planting the, the flower garden versus what they really need the, she's just really like living in a past that isn't there anymore
0: exactly yeah we talked about Mr. Dean. We talked about uh, the young general who they nicknamed black narcissist because it would, it's a, uh, it's a cologne that he wears. Um, but uh, we talked talk about the young general, eventually he leaves with Kanji. like he's kind of seduced by Kanji, who is seen as this kind of like young temptress. Mr. Dean is like, please take her. In, and and <laughs> so she can, you know, get, learn some manners and she can be married off. And I don't want her bothering me anymore. Um, like he's he, Mr. Dean is like so British. He's almost like a character. When you see him, he's riding that little donkey and he's got that outfit, the floppy hat. He just looks so ridiculous. Like his shirt tucked into his shorts. I, I, I say he's ridiculous. I think he's supposed to be kind of a, a dashing figure in a way, like certainly sister Clada and him are, uh, there's a very, there's an unspoken attraction there that is growing throughout the film, but he, he's almost shown as like kind of a, a cartoon character, or a cartoon caricature of like a British explorer, adventurer.
1: Like the romantic, the romantic hero.
0: Yeah, but there's something about him that just goes to the point where it almost, it, it not almost, but it does feel ridiculous. Even though he is, he is dashing that, like that actor.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I was going to ask, do you think that was intentional on their, on the filmmaker's part, in your opinion?
0: I, I'm not sure, just owing to the fact that this was 1947. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this was a little bit more in vogue at the time, but it just seems so on the nose with everything. And they're so in control. Like They control every aspect of what's going on on the set. That I, I want to think that maybe... But also then I don't know because uh, maybe it wouldn't have looked anywhere at all ridiculous in 1947. I just don't, I don't know, I'm not familiar enough with it.
1: Yeah, I think I would have to watch it a couple more times to like really be able to like get a feel for it because I think like the, what you've spoken about that they do have a certain intent to like talk about colonialism and you know, maybe it's just something that isn't fully formed, or maybe we don't recognize it on the level. Just from like a couple of watches, because what I'm noticing about films is that uh, sometimes, like, you can be—at least I—I'm I, not going to say everybody does this, but like, usually the first time I watch a film, I'm like overwhelmed by it. Like, if it's a really and I'll say to him, if it's a really beautiful film, I'm really caught up in just looking at the visuals. And sometimes it takes like a couple of watches to like see details and intent and you know, like real specific things about it that you know maybe weren't clear to me the first time. So I'm I'm actually even when I review stuff, I'm like watching stuff at least twice to work yeah, yeah. multiple times to like say okay maybe i just you my brain was just like going oh look at this uh, that i was i wasn't paying enough to, attention to subtext and symbolism and and maybe something did i didn't i just didn't get it the first time
0: i i totally get that because i it's part of what like stalled my writing all the time when I would write try to write reviews regularly, is I would always write them and then be kind of like second guessing myself, like oh maybe I need to watch this again because so many films where I I kind of have altering or differing opinions a second time I watch it or of course I just notice more stuff on a rewatch. I mean that everybody's going to do that, but I just feel like. I started to not trust my initial opinion about a movie sometimes. Uh, yeah.
1: I, I, you know, that's the thing It's like, sometimes like I've had reactions to films where I watched it the first time and I was like, I don't know if I like that. And I watched it the second time and I'm like, holy cow, this is a great, what was I thinking the first time? Oh, I've actually had that happen very recently. Yeah,
0: and, spoiler alert, me too. We're going to be talking about that in a minute.
1: <laughs> it might have been, it might have just, it was the film Censor the first time I watched it. And maybe it was because I was in a bad mood <laughs> the first time I watched it. But the second time I watched it was was directly after. I was like, my jaw was on the floor. I was like, oh, you, oh my God, what did I, what was I thinking the first time I watched this?
0: Yeah, I've had that a lot. I've had and, that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, just to, to get back to that point, I do think in a way he is meant to look ridiculous. I, I, I think when you ask the question, I was just thinking about his outfit and his mannerisms. But mm-hmm. I think every time they put him on that little pony, like they know <laughs> the he is so right. tall. He is so tall and he's on that little tiny, tiny miniature horse looking thing. And he's just like bouncing around and he's got to hold his legs straight out. It looks so silly. <laughs> That yeah, I imagine that they did that on purpose
1: Well you know there, There's um They also had another film which I haven't seen though, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp
0: Oh yeah I actually just watched that uh, Like a year or two ago for the first time
1: Yeah and Let's see It also has Deborah Kerr in it uh, Yeah
0: she, I think she worked with them A few times because she's in the Red Shoes as well
1: Yeah and that's the thing; it's it's based on a satirical comic, so you know, I that's that's a distinct possibility. I might have to watch it a few more times and and see what I think. And you know, also sometimes, you know, and particularly back then, maybe it wasn't really safe for them to come out and start going, you know, decrying stuff. And maybe maybe it's just not their way. Maybe they they're more they would point things out in a more subtly satirical way and that that i mean honestly thinking about it yeah that that that's that's a visual
0: joke yeah so um i think we've got like one major part of this movie we haven't discussed yet okay and that's sister ruth who (laughs) we're introduced to in the beginning as pretty much always kind of mentally unwell. She's too high strung. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like she really just wants to impress and be, be uh, accepted by the other nuns. But it also seems like certainly sister Clodagh treats her just kind of poorly, like in an offhand way where if sister Ruth comes to her and says like, Oh, I did this. Like, I think she saves somebody in the infirmary Mm -hmm. and thinking that sister Kleda is going to be proud of her sister Kleda is like, well, you shouldn't have done that. That was too risky. Go away. Like she's just kind of like uh, treated in an offhand manner by all the other nuns and gravitates towards Mr. Dean immediately because Mr. Dean kind of shows her a like a modicum of kindness, just kind of like smiles and says, you did okay. <laughs> like, and she starts developing this kind of like romantic attachment in her mind. That, Mm -hmm. kind of um builds and builds through the foam until it's it's kind of maybe a little bit shocking finale (laughs) um so the movie ends with sister ruth trying to leave the nunnery and she finally gets out she's bought she's ordered this red dress she's made herself like put on this bright lipstick and kind of made herself up and she throws herself at mr dean and mr dean like kind of uh, turns her down and she goes back and tries to kill Sister Clada on that mm-hmm. cliff. And this movie suddenly becomes for its last, like, or not for its last, but for this like 10 to 15 minute segment, becomes like a gothic horror movie where <laughs> she looks straight out of a hammer film with her, her makeup, like just kind of popping with the rest of the film. Her hair is disheveled and like, she's got this really like striking outfit and it, it, it's such a defining, like, iconic look in this movie. I think she looks awesome. I really like every
2: time,
0: <laughs> And when she's, like, completely gone mad and is trying to kill Sister Clodagh, and she's standing in that, like, large doorway looking at her, um, mm-hmm. it's really, it's like, I mean, as a horror fan, it's really awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know i think it circle it it kind of goes back to you know that that whole thing of this like having these making these having these ideas and expectations about how things are going to be and and then acting on it and then having basically real life disappoint you <laughs> and 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 just like kind of like the anger and the madness that can bring out in people when you know they've set their heart and you know of course the the character is you know painted as being mentally unstable but there are a lot of people who mentally or or emotionally unstable there's a lot of people who are in power who are emotionally or mentally unstable or perhaps don't have the, you know, the strongest sense of self. So, and, you know, I'm just looking at like the dates uh, on the films that they did together. And I think uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp was 1943 and Black Narcissus was 1947. And uh, of course, Peeping Tom, you know, which is, you know, more of an overt horror film was in 1960. So that was a quite a while afterwards, but having it like kind of do that is just so, it's so surprising and just like, you know, I'm really starting to think that maybe they did, you know, have some more satirical intent because turning like really turning it into like a hammer style horror film before hammer actually existed (laughs) is is kind of a a brilliant move it's it's kind of like showing where not being realistic about life or you having realistic expectations of others can kind of turn into like you into a villain and and life into a horror film it, it, it's 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 a very interesting thing to do and a very interesting choice artistically
0: yeah that that's really yeah i really really like that i also think that there's something to the fact that it is basically the the uncaring nature of sister clada and the others mm-hmm. the, ignore the the way they ignore her that kind of continues to drive her this way like you can see in that early scene an alternate path where she starts to thrive and, you know, become a larger part of this community. And yet they, they shut her down like right, right then and kind of like send her on this other path that leads her to the, to what happens at the end.
1: Well, and that's the thing is, you know, you know, it's kind of a, like a comment on like human nature where, you know, some people are just very officious and, and uncaring, whereas if they just spent a little time and given some, a little attention to something, someone emotionally, rather than shutting them down, they would, they would probably just have a person, you know, a well-functioning person within their society. And all it would take was a little empathy. You know, and it, it's kind of like microcosm macrocosm from, uh, you know, in how interpersonal relationships versus society and different cultures relationships. If you had, you know, maybe if the British had simply treated the Indians with more respect, or, you know, know, the the nuns had treated the people in the area with more respect, the trouble wouldn't have happened in the first place.
0: Well, there's not only that, but there's also the The implication that they're just not going to understand and that that, like if they don't understand they can't really belong there because she wants to kick out the holy man which which is the general's uncle and he just sits there in the mountain and watches like looks off in the distance and he is unmoved by everything that happens in this movie or around him like he's just constantly staring and the fact that the, the misunderstanding with the medicine, the, it's just castor oil, it doesn't do anything to the kid, the kid was gonna die anyway, that the cultures are so at odds, uh, no, sorry, so at odds that they can't do anything without understanding and they're not making any effort to understand.
1: Exactly, uh, and that's exactly it. It's like, it's a lack of understanding that causes
0: conflict. So this this movie, then ends after the after Sister Ruth tries to kill Sister Cladaw she ends up falling to her death um, the movie ends with the nuns heading back the right as the monsoon season is going to begin and that's pretty much what Mr. Dean told them Mr. Dean told them like I don't think you're going to last till monsoon season and as they're leaving <laughs> the rain starts and they 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 are heading back home as rains start to fall um, there's a final goodbye between Sister Cladaw and Mr. Dean, that pretty much acknowledges that they've come to, they've come to have feelings for each other. But uh, he doesn't plan to leave, and for some reason, she she's going to stick with being a nun, um, and so it, it kind of goes unspoken. Uh, it, it's hard not to view, in regards to this movie's place in history, that just a couple of months later, India would get its independence. That it's seen as kind of a retreat, like, like we're leaving. We didn't understand what we were doing here. We tried to exert our control and it didn't happen. It was, it was, uh, it was a tragedy for us. Like there, there has to, that has to be a um, a conscious comment on the, the archers part.
1: Yeah, it really, it honestly, it really seems so, you know and the other thing, I'm sorry, I interrupted you earlier, but um, a lot of it, you know, it's a lack of empathy and understanding, but it's also like the human desire from control that dooms so many things that might have been well intentioned in the first place.
0: Yeah, that I think that's probably a pretty pretty good summation of this uh, of this movie. Um, just really quickly, this is based on a novel by Rumor Godin, who is English born but spent most of her childhood and young adulthood in India. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a bunch of books about life in India and, or fiction books novels I've not read any of her books but the little research I did it seems her view of colonialism and England's role in India uh, a bit more complicated a bit more problematic she seemed to be more pro England's occupation than not but uh the movie I guess that you know the, it, it's a question of tone. I think the movie made a decided change in tone. And I, like I said, we, we talked a lot about how complicated the feelings are can be about it, that it's, it's kind of an anti-colonial movie from a colonialist country, like a colonialist state of mind that even if they weren't trying to do that, it was still coloring their perceptions. Um, I still really admire this movie. I still really like it. Uh, I still think there's a lot in here. It, it is very gorgeous, like everything the Archers do on a kind of like a, a visual and oral level. I, I think it's really good. I I think I I'd, I'd still recommend this movie. I, how about you?
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's it's one it's in the pantheon of films like you know a lot of um, Powell Pressburger um, or just Powell films or Pressburger films. It, you know these are master filmmakers who know exactly what they're doing and, you know, are working on a very intelligent and symbolic level, you know, about making films about human experience, you know, and humanity itself. So, um, you know, I, I bear in mind that, you know, of course it's a product of its time, but I don't think it's intentionally uh, trying to do bad things. I think the intent is is, you know, admirable and certainly the filmmaking is spectacular. So yeah, of course, you know, you you just have to kind of, um, you know, realize that, yeah, a movie from the 1940s isn't gonna be the same as a movie from from 2020, but even 2020 films still have a lot of the same prejudices, really.
0: I th- I feel like maybe we made it. I made a bigger deal out of it than it needed to.
1: No, I don't think so. I think it, I think it's it, it's a good thing to discuss because
0: yeah,
2: it, it,
1: it, it's there it it it's and it's something that colors a lot of films.
0: No, I I agree. I just I I think maybe I left an impression that it's a bigger deal because I definitely have seen m- movies from this period and even a lot later than this that are much more plot problematic than this film is. Um, yeah, I I also just felt like. The movie is so much about this, that it, that subject itself, that um, it, you can't really, you can't really take the conversation apart and not mention it.
1: Yeah. No, it's also very, you know, in a way it's, you know, their attempt at making a statement about colonialism. Now, is it 100% successful? No, but parts of it are very... Um, I think are important maybe more about like the human aspect of it you know very um understanding of humanity's desire to control other other people you know so i i think it's it's very important on that level it's very human humanistic film in its way
0: agreed agreed so we're going to take a quick break we're going to come right back we're going to be talking about uh dolores's pick we're going to be talking about the
2: devils
0: (gasps) the devils burn an explosive film absolutely brilliant ABC TV superbly frighteningly effective Time magazine but of course I can
2: prove nothing this mother superior may be little more than a hysterical nun exactly
0: mere conjecture And what form does this incubus take? The Devils is not a film for everyone. Vanessa Redgrave, Oliver Reed, in Ken Russell's film of The Devils. The Devils tells the story of the fall of Urban Grandier, a 17th century priest accused of witchcraft in the fortified city of Loudon. Adapted from Aldous Huxley's non fiction novel, The Devils of Loudon. Ken Russell's 1971 film caused quite an uproar upon its release, owing to its still shocking mix of over-the-top sex, violence, and absurdism. A critical failure at the time, The Devils has amassed quite a few admirers over the year and enjoys a much more positive reputation these days. Now, I saw this for the first time just a couple of years ago, um, after Shudder got it. Shudder got it and it was a big to-do. That was the first time ever the uncut version was going to be available in America. Mm-hmm. And as we'll discuss in a little while, it's still not quite uncut, but it's the, it, for the version that was on Shudder and is not anymore, is uh, still like the most complete version that's been readily available to people over here. Um, so after my first dis- viewing, I didn't know what to think. You, you said earlier in our discussion about Black Narcissist, you talked about being overwhelmed with a movie sometimes that you can't really form an opinion on it that's how i felt my first viewing of the devils and then it's partly because the movie is not subtle right it throws so much it down uh, it is throwing so much at you all the time it quiets down occasionally but it's always intercutting with a rush of sounds and images and really loud uh really baroque imagery it is really bright the the kind of modernist setting the way they designed the set it, it can be very hard to decipher um it wasn't until second viewing that i kind of appreciated it and found it i actually found it strangely moving and then this last rewatch, um i, I mean i really i really loved it i thought i was like oh, okay i really get what ken russell was going for now um, what's your history with this movie though how when was the first time you saw this
1: I actually saw this movie when I was a teenager. Um, I got into, like, I don't know what to call it, outsider cinema pretty young because, you know, I started off with horror movies when I was, like, seven. So, you know, after, you know, watching stuff like Night of the Living Dead and The the Thing and uh, The Exorcist, you know, there's pretty much only a few more places to go, you know. So, you know, I started reading Dassaud when I was like 16, and um, watching John Waters movies. You know, when I was 15, 16, so, you know, I went. I went straight from John Waters, Ken Russell, David Lynch. Which I actually I'd already known about David Lynch because my dad was a David Lynch fan when I was. I was a kid, he loved Dune. So I got to hear about David Lynch. I already knew about him when I was a kid. Um, So uh, I just, you know, I just went straight to like the outsider cinema (laughs) and Ken Russell. um, I won't call him a boyfriend, but it was a guy that I was kind of involved with right around that time when I was like 16, 17, who was just nuts. And he wanted, He thought he was a director. He wanted to be just like Eric von Stroheim. I'm serious, with a writing crop and a hailer yelling at people. And he, you know, he loved Ken Russell. So we we're going to watch some Ken Russell. And I, was, I watched it and I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, I watched other things that he had directed, like Gothic and Blair the White Worm and... Um, and later on, you know, much, lo- much later after I had, um, you know, I stopped talking to this guy. Um, you know, I was, I, I was like digging deeper into um, Russell's filmography, you know, watching stuff like The Music Lovers, because I'm also um, a Harlan Ellison fan. And Harlan Ellison, he wrote film criticism. And that was also some stuff that I was reading when I was like, like a kid, um, so you know. So back then, I had also heard about the Music Lovers, which is you know, a film of a uh, you know, biographical film of uh, Tchaikovsky. And you know, this, you know, this it was basically just some of the most amazing cinema I had ever heard of. So naturally, you know, if someone so was like, "Hey, I love this movie too. You should watch it. Let's watch it right now!" Like, you know, I, I'm all over that. So. That was literally the first time I went to the new Beverly was to go to a midnight showing of uh, pink flamingos. So (laughs) I've been into this, into this stuff for a while and I've been a big Ken Russell booster roughly since I was about 16, you know? So, yeah, I tell people and, you know, things have really, really changed with Ken Russell. People used to laugh at the idea that he was not sure, you know, they thought his films were garbage, you know, and I'm just like, is wrong with you it's just like they couldn't accept the surrealist and absurdist uh aspects of what he did and why he did it but i mean he's a very serious filmmaker he worked uh, doing documentaries for the bbc for a long time (laughs) you know it's it's he's not just this like he he, i think in a lot of ways he's been painted well, he in the past he had been painted like like a, a British schoolboy who enjoys doing vulgar things just for the sake of doing of, of shock value and vulgar reasons. But he, he's absolutely not that. And so yeah, I've had like I've been a Ken Russell fan most of my life and I'm actually somewhat gratified that people are finally catching on, but only to one film <laughs> and also kind of irritated that people found my favorite one of my favorite filmmakers <laughs>
0: oh i i get that i get that, that uh yeah that that kind of competing feeling about that i hadn't i i have only seen a few ken russell films i've seen of course tommy what else did i see i've seen gothic and he did a segment in trapped ashes this not very good horror anthology from about uh 15 to 20 years ago I can't remember when it came out uh 2006 so
1: yeah yeah I I haven't seen that but um like I was watching Ken Russell movies when I wasn't even aware they were Ken Russell movies like my parents my family watched Tommy and Altered States and I I had no idea it was him because
0: yeah I didn't know that
1: much about film back then
0: yeah, I yeah. Altered States is one that I is really high up on my list. There's actually a bunch of movies that he's done that I really want to see. I just haven't gotten around to it. Um probably will be watching Lair of the White Worm this weekend because that's I think on Tubi right now.
1: Oh, that's a hoot.
0: Yeah. Well <laughs> I will say I, I get what they're saying about him as like kind of a schoolboy who likes to just do shocking things. Like there's a bit of a provoc- provocateur to him. I I went and I read Ebert's review of, uh, of this movie, The Devils. And I, I, I love Ebert. I think he's a terrific writer. I do not agree with him a lot on movies. I mean, I think I agree with him a, a lot of the time. But there's a, a lot of stuff that we are just like, I cannot believe he missed the boat so much on that.
1: <laughs> well, he, he has a real problem with horror and violence. He does. He 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 just offends him morally, and that, I feel the same way about him. I I really respect him as a writer, and sometimes I go, "Dude, come on."
0: Well, I don't know if you've gone to read the his review for the Devils, but it is the most sarcastic I've ever seen him. He doesn't say a genuine thing about the movie, but it is clear he hated it, and. Mm-hmm it sounds like it just kind of like really, really offended him. And I, I can kind of get that, especially if you're watching like an edited version, a lot of stuff that's been cut out. Because this movie, it's, it's very ugly on a first view. There's horrific torture in this. The, the people are just kind of like gr- grotesque. It, it is a grotesque movie. There is then another undercurrent of very absurd humor sex and sexual violence that can be hard to stomach. And on my first viewing, I was like, what is it people really like about this movie? And it was on my second viewing that I was like, oh, okay, I, I kind of get it. Um, I get what he's trying to say. That um, it can look like on a first viewing, like, okay, I get it, I get he's saying that religion and government are bad and everybody is a hypocrite, but why do I have to sit here and watch all this torture for, for, for me to get that point? And then it isn't until kind of like I was able to, to watch it a second time and I wasn't quite so overwhelmed by the um, just a constant like screaming and squalor that everybody is living in <laughs> that I, I kind of like found the beauty in the movie.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's the sensationalistic, You know, provoc because he that's the thing. He absolutely is a provocateur. He knows how to twist every push everybody's buttons and twist everybody's knobs. He's really good at it. But you know, he's not the giggling schoolboy underneath the table. He's a highly intelligent man. He's actually, I believe, a Roman Catholic, and has very strong political opinions. Because, you know, I've read, I've read like a lot, read and watched like a, a lot of, um, you know, the comment that he made about uh, the film and that um, Oliver Reed made about the film. Uh, they, you know, they felt compelled to make a political statement. That's what this is. And I think because of the graphic nudity and the torture much like another film that, you know, I feel is uh, thematically similar, uh, which is uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini's uh, Salo, or the 120 Days of Sodom. It's sensationalistic, filled with torture and horror and grotesque things, but it's done for a reason. You know, with solo, it's meant to show you, really grind your face into, how bad fascism really is, you know, using the, you know, an adaptation of a book by the de to do it. And I, I feel very, from a thematic standpoint um, that basically The Doubles is very similar. And I'm trying, actually, I'm gonna look it up and see who came first. I think, you know, it's basically someone's that, yeah, Sala was 1975. And the devils was. 1971.
0: 1971.
1: So it comes out of that same similar period. Of like very political filmmaking. You know, there's also. uh, Another film, the battle of Algiers, which I think really kind of. Kicked off this, this kind of like very, very politically motivated filmmaking. It's a. Directed by uh, Gilo uh, Pontecorvo, And I mean, it's really, really political. And there's some really it, it's not to level the doubles or solo, but it's it's got some real brutality to it. And, you know, when people say, well, you know, why do you have to show this? You know, there's there's another recent film called A New Order by Michelle Franco that's gotten similar reactions like uh, yeah, uh, the LA that. times re- review of that. He hates it. He, 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 it's like, he expected to see parasite. He even mentions the movie parasite. He's like, like it, like it's almost like the critic is saying, why didn't you make parasite? <laughs> because it's not parasite because it it's a film to show you exactly how bad it is to be in central or south america under these type of conditions you know it and you know the the point you know people are like well i don't want to watch something that's so terrible well that that's kind of you putting your hands over your eyes and saying well if i don't see it this doesn't exist
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's i feel that honestly that's exactly why people like Corvo, Ken Russell, uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini, and Michel Franco make these type of movies because people are ignoring it. I mean, the fact that uh, Michel Franco felt compelled to make a film like New Order in 2020, 2021, shows that it's still being ignored. Even now, and you know, I mean, it, it's the uh, you know I'll say it. I'll say it every single time. The the real power of Ken Russell's filmmaking in *The Devils* is that 60, 60 years later, Warner Brothers is still too scared to release <laughs> the full version. That's I, how terrified they
0: are. I cannot believe that. I. I don't, like, they've announced it and then taken that announcement back and, like, said, no, 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 that was a mistake. I, like, it, it, it was released on Shutter They made a huge deal about how it was uncensored, and it's pretty much the most complete version that's readily available. That's true. But yeah there's still stuff missing from it, and that stuff exists. It's not all lost. I don't know why, like, there's such a call for it now. I don't know who they're worried about offending these days. Although- uh, The Catholic
1: church, probably.
0: True, but are they really gonna care? Like, is that is that gonna be high on their list right now of them releasing to like, I don't know, Arrow Video or Criterion or something, the uncut version of The Devils? It's not like it's the, gonna be the huge news that it was in 1971. This is gonna be pretty much noteworthy only to collectors, like, uh, you know, a small percentage of the population.
1: Mm-hmm. It's still a Warner Brothers film. They're they're frightened of it.
2: They,
0: yeah.
1: They, this is how that that's the power of his filmmaking. They're still too scared to even license it to somebody else. And, you know, I, except for you know Mark Kermode and BFI.
2: I, and will...
1: I I've never seen that. For I'm going to order it at some point, but I don't even know if it's got everything in it.
0: Well, I will tell you right now. I sent you the link, but the the way I watched it because I it's not on Shutter anymore. And it's taken us a while to get this episode together. I think we were talking about this for, oh, did I say a couple months, like a month or two. And so I watched it, I watched it thinking like, okay, we're going to do this episode this week. And then I'm I'm taking the blame for it. I just kept rescheduling. I've had a lot going on Um, that. I wanted to watch it again, but it's not on Shudder anymore. I found on the internet archive, a couple of versions of this movie and there's two versions I, and I'll, I'll put a link out there for people. There's one that I watched. It says it's uncensored. It's not the greatest quality copy of this movie, but it's watchable and it has burnt in Spanish subtitles. I'm so <laughs> not sure where they ripped it from, but yeah, I watched that version. And then when I was almost over, I found another version that was even more complete, even, but even that was missing a scene. I will say that watching it this time, I went in thinking like, oh, Uncensored, it's going to be what I saw on Shudder. No, it has the infamous Rape of Christ scene, and when that scene went on and on and on, I thought like, well, not only am I not surprised they cut this out for theatrical release in 1971, <laughs> I'm surprised they let him film it. <laughs> like, Not that I'm, I'm personally offended by it, but I'm just like looking at it, I'm like, wow, this is so much more than what I had seen before in the previous versions of this movie. Uh, uh, the, the one that's on Shutter, it was shocking. And I only kind of like heard about it. I didn't know what the scene entailed, but I was like, um, we'll, we'll get into it. We, we can cover this, but it, there, yeah. <laughs> uh, I will put the link out if anybody is interested and maybe, maybe you can find it. Um, it's been there for a while. Hopefully it doesn't get taken down. I guess getting into the movie itself, there's like a lot of political intrigue in this movie and I found a lot of it to be very um, kind of evergreen in how it views the world. Like it's, it's point of view seems not out of date, right? Like in 2021, you know, whatever problems we had with black narcissists and what it's, whatever made it out of date now so many years later is not a problem with the devils. I think it's it's political message is still sound and we open up we've got uh louis the 13th king of france and cardinal richelieu and louis the 13th is trying to shock people like he is he is basically i think what ken russell is accused of being where he's just trying to be outrageous (laughs) and and like
1: for the sake of being outrageous yeah
0: yeah. and cardinal cardinal richelieu is watching the show where he's kind of like he's kind of half naked kind of in drag he's kind of it would be like you would think it would be offensive and Cardinal Richelieu is just sitting there yawning into his hand and looks so completely disinterested. And then we get their first line of dialogue where Cardinal Richelieu is telling telling Louis, and he agrees, that France should not have a separation between church and state, that the church and the state should be one. And uh, Louis Thirteenth kisses his his hand and says amen and then the title the devils (laughs) so obviously like clear clear message right from the beginning this movie is Mm -hmm. going to be about people who say they have been possessed by devils but the devils in this movie are the church and the state bingo (laughs) which which i which i find you know my my atheists uh you know um increasingly politically radicalized self <laughs> find <laughs> find to be in an evergreen sentiment like that is something that's so but beyond that like i mean i guess we don't need to go through this plot step by step but by the end of the movie you know that it's they they basically orchestrate this show trial for grandier saying that he has seduced the these nuns that he has um he is in league with the devil and the entire, like all these forces come to bear. Like it becomes this huge show where the, the nuns are just like ripping their hair out. They're going to are naked. They're, they're constantly writhing and screaming. And uh, there's just, it, it's, I don't even know how to describe it, but it is madness. And the end of the movie, like is, is they're trying to get him accused of witchcraft. He is, they have him sentenced to death all of this stuff, the people in the town of Loudon, and, and the, I guess I should back up a little bit more. The um, the problem is, is that Loudon is fortified and the uh, King Louis XIII promised to never touch a stone in the fortifications. And Cardinal Richelieu needs the fortifications taken down symbolically so that he can, you know, begin to take over France and build the new town of Richelieu. And so Richelieu yeah. is trying to get Loudon destroyed, basically. And so to do that, they have him accused of witchcraft. The people that live in the town that this is going to affect do not care. Like, throughout the movie, they repeatedly side with Grandier. They agree that he is basically being tried for political reasons, that he is innocent. They agree with all of this, and yet are never not entertained by seeing him tortured and by seeing the nuns tortured, even though they know it's fake. Like nobody believes in any of this. And you've got the government and the church acting in bad faith. The populace knows it and doesn't care because it's entertaining, which Mm -hmm. I think is a a political message that I didn't get the first time I watched it, but it's hard to miss, especially on a rewatch. And I think is probably it's most like, impactful lasting message for me from this movie
1: yeah it really is um i mean it's it's political it's 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 a multi it is really a multi-layered criticism of um basically human society in general i mean and it, it, it is it completely relevant to what's going on today i mean look at what happened with you know the that orange guy Everybody knew what, was, what he was doing. It, it was clear that he was trying to take over like permanently. But so many people were entertained by it. They let it, we let it happen. I mean, there were indications quite early on that this was him taking over as president was going to be very bad. And people thought it was funny. They're like ah oh, ha 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 great fun yeah, you know then like anywhere between six hundred and thousand to a million people dead later, you know yeah was a few la- was a few laughs really worth it? Have we learned anything yet? Well, you know what's really important to people.
0: I get it. I, I know it's it's it is rough. Um, I, I will say to this movie's credit, it never makes it that explicit. It never, it never explicitly says, like, oh, bread and circuses. This is just, you know, people just go along with their own destruction because it's entertaining. But that that metaphor is there. That is probably actually one of the more subtle uh, metaphors in this movie, which I said is, as I said, is not subtle. Um,
1: no, and he, but that's the thing is he's not subtle because he knows he has to be. I don't think he does it because, you know, he's that much of a provocateur. I think he realizes that to there's a concept, and I you know I don't know if somebody else has articulated it before, but basically it's something that you know I I think about. Um, you know, I thought it was about while well, writing about Army of the Dead, um, which I haven't put out yet, but. Um, you know, people, you know, get very upset about, you know, violence in films. And I think that in large part, like violence, particularly graphic violence in in films is a way to kind of kick down the door of people's perceptions and get people to pay attention. You know, people say, you know, oh, well, they're provocateurs. Yes, they are. But the, what they're really trying to do, they are trying to get your attention. And the best way to do that is to knock someone's social defenses down by literally kicking in the door and screaming in their face so loudly that they can't ignore it. That's, you know, it's, it's, how, it's the concept behind like punk rock, protest. You have to show up and kind of get in people's faces because people will ignore you for as long as they have to. I mean, uh, humanity's got a built-in editing feature. And I think it's it's also like, there's another film, sensor uh, that's uh, coming out soon that kind of deals with humanity's capacity to ignore the things that they don't like or the things that upset them. And I think that's one of the, one of, um, Russell's most brilliant talents is to be able to really find those transgressive acts because it's not like he's he's going around disemboweling people <laughs> in this film, that nothing like that happens. So, you know, there's basically like, there's a lot of nudity, there's a lot of like religious blas- blasphemy, There's there's a certain Aspect of uh, rape um, having to do with you know old style, it's really torture. But you know, it's just it's something that they're still doing today. When you know um, you you probably heard like it's it's even here in where they insist on checking if a woman is a virgin, the virginity
2: test. Yeah.
1: It's the same thing. It's it hasn't gone away. And he puts it in your face so that you can't just selectively decide that it's not something you know about. And you know, he, he's, he's, he feels, he and Oliver Reed, both obviously felt very st- so strongly about the idea, not just about what happened to Grandier, but what the church and what society were still doing to that point, that they had to make a, a, basically a political stand And I think the reason he got to do it is because of Women in Love, which was his movie he made in 1969, which was, you know, Academy Awards all over the place and, you know, very respectable. That's why he got to do this. And, um, you know, he's working with the, basically the cream of British filmmaking and actors, you know, Vanessa Redgrave, who's also a very political person, she was, they're, you know, talking, you know, on the side of the Palestinian people before it was really popular to do so. She got in a lot of trouble for that as well. Oh. So, you know, she, you know, she's like Jane Fonda. You know, people, you know, how people consider people still call Jane Fonda "Hanoi Jane" to this day mm. because you know she spoke out. You know, she wasn't just speaking. She was speaking out against the military machine, not against the soldiers specifically, unless they did bad things like at My Lai. She was there for you know the Vietnamese people who were being killed, the Cambodian people, the Laotian people um, who were being massacred. But you know she was also there for the soldiers, who U.S. soldiers who didn't really sign up to be puppets in this as well. So you know, the, there was a period, like in the '70s, where there were a lot of artists who had these very strong feelings, and you know, that's that's what I feel like. Like in particular, the devil's is it's a it's a transgressive act to try and get through to people. And like I said, I believe I believe he's Roman Catholic. So I don't know if he like. He was Roman Catholic his whole life, but that's certainly how he was raised. So yeah, I think a lot of people think when you show like religious blasphemy, you can't be religious. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Like I'm an atheist. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So I think that some of the most reverent believers might indulge in blasphemy to make the point that the church doesn't truly honor the teachings of, you know, Jesus Christ, or, you know, as God's representative on earth. Like I said, I'm an atheist, but, you know, I can see that they, you know, Part of the outrage, you know, someone who is Roman Catholic, and I also am—I am a, I'm a lapsed Roman Catholic. Sometimes that's where some of the worst, the most biting criticism, comes from, is someone who understands the religion and really believes in it, because
2: there is—it's
1: oh. so offensive to them. No, because that that perversion of the word of God and uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ is that offensive to them.
0: There is also a subtext in this film, which we see repeated in real life, that the most religious are often the ones who most enjoy seeing blasphemy. Uh, They wouldn't admit it to themselves as as enjoyment, but you see how people react to the idea that the nuns are having sexual con- Congress with uh, demons or in they the- get a kick,
1: They get a kick out of it.
0: Yeah, and you see them whipping themselves up into a fervor, not, not just the you know, townsfolk or the doctors, but the religious, um, the priests, Father Mignon. <sighs> okay, so-
1: <laughs> the, this, That look on his face when he climbs the tower in the in the rape of christ scene when he's looking at everybody and his eyes just keep getting bigger and bigger like
0: oh the the uncut scene i saw today it is explicitly clear that he is also masturbating yes the (laughs) which is is a pretty direct comment like taking that sort of stuff out of the movie really does weaken like you can make an argument like oh that's just way too over the top um we should cut this too but that does weaken the argument he's making that it it is these people that say that they love this religion that are most enjoying the fact that when these rules are broken and the fact that they can't admit it to themselves is what causes so much pain and hardship. And mm-hmm. we see that today, like with how, how many people went to go see The Exorcist and how many of them were were Catholic, you know, mm-hmm. that how many people went to see Passion of the Christ and churches were giving out free screenings and that's just watching torture for an hour.
1: Well, and that's the thing is that, and that was... I don't know if it was specifically church sanctioned, but everybody loved The Passion of the Christ. It was such a religious movie, but something like The Devils isn't. It's an incredibly religious movie. It's it's traditionally faithful. Traditionally, it's very faithful to religion. Well, the teachings of the religion, not necessarily the religious entity.
0: It is faithful to the religion while being very skeptical of the church. But yes. it, that's the, the difference because in Passion of the Christ and The Exorcist, those movies work to enforce the status quo of religion, of organized religion. Um, very early in the movie, I kind of want to go over what my, my feelings were when I watched this movie the first time, mm-hmm. is very early in the movie, we get that scene right after... Grandier has found out that this young woman he's sleeping with is pregnant. And he mm-hmm. kind of like gives her his whole speech where he's like, well, that's too sad. That means this is over. Go back to your father, tell him the truth, find a good man for yourself, but we can't be together anymore. It's kind of an introduction to him. He's like, he's such a character that it took me a rewatch to figure him out. He's mm-hmm. the hardest character in this movie to understand because everybody else has such clear, a clear purpose they're going for like the church and the state just want to get rid of him because they he's standing in the way of their plans for France.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The townspeople the villagers are just entertained. They don't they're they're amoral, maybe not amoral, but in regards to the story, they're they're amoral because they don't care which way it goes. They're just entertained by everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but Grandier, played by Oliver Reed, is so vain. He's so like blasphemous in his actions and his sleeping around and the things he says, while also still being a man of faith. And I, I had a hard time understanding him. And then it, it comes cuts kind of not directly from the scene, but the there's another scene later on where a woman comes to him that the doctors are, her mother is dying and the doctors are making things worse. And he goes into this room and the doctors are in these, have these weird Like goggles on their heads and they got these weird contraptions and they're putting these suction cups on the dying woman who's naked and they're like attaching bees to her to sting them or to dust her with pollen leeches there's a a stuffed alligator in the bed next to him and he's like yelling at them to get out and he gives her the last rites and then he he um, I, i when you know the the stuffed sorry crocodile or alligator i'm like this This is crazy. This movie is over the top. And then the next scene is that girl's father from earlier comes and attacks Grandier in the street with a sword. And Grandier is fighting him with that stuffed crocodile. (laughs) And they're having a sword fight in the street while there's like plague victims, like being loaded into carts around them and there's fires and it's nighttime. It's so crazy. And I just was like, what the hell is going on with this movie? And I felt like I was completely back on my heels the entire movie, like not able to get it until a rewatch. A rewatch, I was like, oh, I, I, I was just like, but it, on the first watch, I was just too overwhelmed. And I totally get that from people. If people have a negative reaction to this movie, I understand that because it, it's a lot to take in at first.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think that's part of the artistic intent. It's like, he, he means to overwhelm you with sensation. And because when you watched it, you didn't understand. So what did you want to do? Oh
0: yeah, I rewatched it. <laughs>
1: you wanted to under, you wanted to understand why he was like that it, it, you know it's, it's a, that pathway the the transgress not even transgressive but the absurdity the absurdist elements that make you go well, what the hell I, I i don't i don't get this and it makes you curious about why is he doing this what is going on here you know, it may, it, it awakens your, your curiosity and which, you know, I think is linked to empathy in, in human, in humanity. It's, when you start wondering about why people are doing things, you, you, you start to have empathy for who they are and what they're doing. Once you start under, it's, it's a bridge to understanding and empathy. That's why I think is so skillful about his filmmaking is he knows how to overwhelm you with absurdity and surrealism so that it just makes you, it, you know, so it just makes you crazy. Like what is going on here? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? I don't understand.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it did strike me as like, cause the movie is so, um, it's so dingy in a lot of ways. It's so down to earth. The, the set decoration, the architecture of this city, it's like stark white. It's very modernist for like, it, it's kind of anachronistic, but very striking, but it's, I couldn't figure out what the tone this movie was going for. It, it is really all over the place. Um, there's a scene I want to point out later on where the, the it, it's what leads into the rape of Christ sequence
2: mm-hmm.
0: is, when they're, they're in the, the nun, uh, the convent, and the nuns are going crazy. And um, what is the guy, the other guy, the other priest's name, the one that comes in, and he's got like that, um, that, that sleeveless the last,
1: outfit. The 70s guy?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to put it in here before I forget it. I think that the anachronisms are deliberate.
2: Oh, well, yeah,
1: they're, they're there to, you know, like the, you know, the buildings and the um, and the this particular character of the the exorcist priest. I'll get his name. I'm looking it up right now. Father Barr, I think. Is his yeah, name.
0: yeah. Father Barr, Michael Guitar. Father,
1: yeah. Father Barr, he's he literally looks like like a 70s dude on a commune. He and he's styled that way. He's got the long hair with the kind of the feathery cut.
0: And the glasses.
1: 70s glasses. And just that whole attitude of like the guru type. And I think it's 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 another layer of um, of the symbolism, you know, basically saying that yes, this is a historical story. This is historical. You know, it's a story from france in 17th century but these anachronisms uh connect it to modern day
0: i i will say his character is his character i really enjoy i mean he's 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 not a good character i I don't mean he's a a guy to root for no i I just mean his his acting his whole look in this movie because there's that that moment where he's got like the priest collar on, he's got like the vestments, but he's got no sleeves, and <laughs> he's just like, it. It looks like he's like, oh, this is the modern priest that like works yeah. out and like likes to he, look you, know what, um, you know what
1: he is? He's the rock star, and that's that's the thing. It's a symbolism that Russell used uh, among a bunch of a few different movies. Um, you know, obviously in Tommy, he used it here with Father Barr. And he also he made a film about Franz Lietz called Mania, With um, the lead singer of the Who, Roger Daltrey, as Liedzt. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing him right. I'm not German. I'm Mexican. Please help me.
2: <laughs>
0: but, I heard it as List, but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, Litz Litz, Litz, I don't know. I, I li- only listen to Rammstein, you guys. <laughs> uh, and I always I don't pronounce it.
0: You know how to pronounce German. <laughs>
1: Yeah, fr- Franz fr- uh, lit, Litz, Litz, uh, Litz, Litz, potato, potato, and whatever. Um, and he portrays Franz Litz, 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 whatever, as a rock star. So I, it's a recurring character theme among a few different movies of his.
0: And I will say his character, he is, I mean, I understand Oliver Reed was a, a kind of a, "Quote unquote heartthrob" at the time, like mm-hmm. he's he's considered very sexy. I think uh, Michael Guitard as uh, Father Barr is the most what we like conventionally modernly attractive, right? Like he's he's a handsome guy.
1: Oh yeah, he but he really is. He's he's the heartthrob. He's the rock star. He, he also, uh, from what we understand, as rather he, than Oliver Reed and his yeah. kind of char- charisma.
0: But he speaks also in a much more like a, a much more bombastic way. I mean, not not more bombastic than Grandier, but he never mutters everything he says. He says he's like he's the like the the white hat hero in, an, in a in a an action movie. He he does seem like he would be like the hero hero if we just if you just watch the scene of this movie. About, about that, there's a the scene where he's he's trying to exercise the nuns. And they're all going crazy around him. And people are trying to restrain them. And they're just like climbing all over everything and ripping off their habits and running around naked. And uh, this member of the royal family comes in with his, his retinue. And <laughs> he's just kind of like watching and seems so entertained by it all. And he offers the uh, father bar a box which has a vial of Christ's blood in it. Mm. So, and Father Barr is like, oh, well, surely the devils would would depart immediately. And so he uses it. And suddenly the nuns just quiet down. And then the guy reaches over, grabs the box, opens it, and it's empty. And he laughs. And he's like, Father Barr has a line, what kind of trick are you trying to pull on me? And he's like, no, no, Father Barr, what kind of trick are you trying to pull on us? And they just laugh and leave. And everybody laughs like they knew it was a joke. Even the nuns that were pretending to be possessed are laughing because they've been found out but nobody cares like it doesn't stop the investigation at all they're still convinced like well then nobody's convinced they're still just going to go ahead with it anyway and that 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 turns into the orgy scene in the movie and then in the deleted scene it it culminates in the rape of christ where i mean i've been dancing around it but they basically like pull down a life-size or even taller than life-size uh crucified jesus statue and uh like there's a lot of rising and <laughs> rubbing against it. Sorry. I, I don't know how, how, how uh, tame I need to be when, if anybody's listening to this, they might've seen that. They probably have seen the movie and know what to expect.
1: Well, you know, it, it's also a literal, and I, I watched the scene um, cause I've seen parts of it, but not like as much of it as, uh, as you, uh, about ar- archive.org car- Well, and not as much of it as I just saw on that copy. It's a literal and a figurative rape of Christ because they they actually grab one of the priests and rip his clothes off and you you see Wiener. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and they're attacking him. So it's, you know, and the symbolism of the rape of Christ scene, you know, both literal and figurative is the true blasphemy of people who pervert, you know, the, the faith in God and Christ in in the Judeo-Christian um, belief system or any belief system really, they pervert it for their own political ends. That's really the rape of Christ.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They, in, to me, that's exactly what that scene says. And I, you know, I can honestly, when I was watching the regular version, you know, on Shudder or uh, yeah, I saw it at the Cine family once, uh, you know, I saw it originally when I was 16. It, it's intercut with very um, quiet, emotional scenes with Grandier and his wife that are, com- that are incredibly reverent and beautiful, and they're more religious than what's going on.
0: Yes. Yes. in them
1: and that juxtaposition is not it, it's really not you know by chance you know it shows you that where the you know that faith real faith exists outside of religion particularly when it's being perverted for political ends
0: and i i think it's kind of clear in this movie as well that grandier's Introduction as kind of a kind of an asshole. Like he's he, oh
1: no, he's a total asshole. He's yeah, a real jerk.
0: The implication is, is that Madeline, the the woman he ends up marrying, uh, is is kind of the catalyst for his change, like it's his realization of what real love is, which does deepen his love of God throughout the movie. Um, and his
1: his faith and but also his political it, it deepens his faith, but it also deepens his Political viewpoint and his desire for justice.
0: Yeah, I I, I got to ask, do you think that there is anything to the fact that all of the royals are portrayed as effeminate and like kind of coded to be gay? And certainly, um, Louis the Thirteenth is maybe bisexual, but I, that guy who comes in with the fake blood the of com- Christ—the
1: Count, yeah, the uh, Comte, de, Comte de Paris or something—I. You know, I'll look it up, but he's, he's the count. He's, he's one of his family members. But um, yeah, actually I do. Um, I think, yes, I think that they're absolutely coded to be gay. And they're also some of the most intelligent people in the whole film. Now they're perfectly willing to let people be murdered for political reasons. They're not gonna step in. Because they know that there's no point to them doing it; that it, it can only be used against them. So, it, it, basically, they're they're very intelligent and politically savvy, and they know they're going to stay out of it because it is the wisest course of action. So, I think you know, in them being coded to be gay, he's actually saying something good about them. <laughs> he he's he's not he's not throwing stones or displaying homophobia or anything in in my estimation. He's actually saying, these are the smartest people here. Grandier, he's a man of faith. You know, he's, and I agree with you, It's basically meeting Madeline. He's, he's a, he's in love with sensation, particularly sexual because he's lost as a person. He's seeking like earthly pleasures because he doesn't have spiritual satisfaction because he doesn't know real love. And in finding Madeline and a real love with a genuine person that strengthens his faith and his political beliefs which of course leads to his death because he takes a stand and they kill him for it. Whereas the, you know, the count and uh, the king, you know, they, they know what side of the, the bread, you know, is buttered for them. They, they you know, one, the, the king, you know, is shown shooting Protestants at the beginning, you know, the, or maybe it's about a, like a quarter of the way through. Um, so they are, they're shown not as sympathetic, but very smart, very politically savvy. They, they know what's up and they mean they're not just not gonna get involved. And Whereas Grandier sacrifices himself. However, then now he's dead. So he's not going to be able to change anything. They're not really people of faith. They, they know what's going on, but that's how they're in power.
0: Yeah, I, that, that's a more charitable read than I first had. And maybe you're right on that. Because when I first watched this, I, I thought like, well, the period this is being made in 1971, homosexuality is still considered a lifestyle choice. And it's like it, the, it would have been culturally seen as like deviant at the time and that maybe that's not how he felt but i, I felt that it was kind of like him u- using it to show sort of the detachment and
1: uh uh i definitely agree with you on the detachment
0: yeah well like the detachment and kind of the um the corrupted nature of the royalty at the time and not mm-hmm. not that that's what being gay means just that. I think that in I thought that in 1971, that's what the cultural connotation would have been in this movie. And maybe I'm completely wrong in that. I, I would much prefer to believe that it, it's your uh, interpretation of the. the yeah,
1: topic. I. You know, I don't think that he would have. You know, a problem with any of that. Like Jer- Derek Jarman was his set was um, worked for him.
0: Oh yes, yes, yeah. yeah that, I meant yeah, to mention he, that when I was talking about the set decoration.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, part of it is the time period. Because also someone who's that flamboyantly gay um, on screen is something that in 1971 is still going to be seen as transgressive. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they're not really the true villains of the piece. They're just kind of uh, bemused uh, watchers of it. You know, they know what's going on. They know what's up, but yeah, they're not going to fix it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. they're, They're smarter than that. You know, but I think, you know, part of it is the time period, but part of it is also just that you show something like that, or you have the character saying stuff like, women, how disgusting. (laughs) That's going to rile people up. You know what I mean?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. It's going to, it's also transgressive. It's something that's going to be shocking pretty much to most heterosexual people, especially heterosexual males of that period you know, we had, they hadn't gotten to the full 70s kind of like bisexual, like society that eventually happened, you know, it was coming close, but it was still was kind of something that was shocked, would be shocking to people in, in, in my thought pattern, you know, I could be also be wrong.
0: No, I mean, we, it, it could be open to, it could be open. I, I do believe you're right that that would not have been the feelings of Uh, Ken Russell Uh, I don't I don't think it would have I like I don't think my interpretation is literally what Ken Russell was thinking Um, Mm -hmm. so do do you have anything more you want to say about the devils here before we wrap up
1: I don't know I mean I think that you know I have very you know you know obviously I believe it's you know it's definitely one of my favorite films that has ever been made I think it's a masterpiece of cinema Um, I'm not the only one Um, and I think that um, a lot of people fundamentally misunderstand Ken Russell's intent as an artist because they can't deal with how far he's willing to go to make a point or, you know, or basically where his artistic impulses lead because he's not the type of person who censors himself when he has an artistic impulse. And I kind of touched on it earlier, but basically when uh, we'll go back to Zack Snyder, when Zack Snyder was given the opportunity to show full frontal nudity on a zombie, and he, he definitely, he would have gotten away with it. I mean, no question, I mean, possessor, there's full frontal male nudity, full frontal female nudity, the oh, whole did. nine Watchmen. yards in, in Possessor. And it, it, that, that got shown theatrically um, in 2020.
0: Well, they he also keep, did it in Watchmen quite a bit.
1: Yeah, you know, that's what I mean, but he could have done it and he wanted to do it, but he self-censored himself. He's like, no, I think it's going too far. And with someone like Ken Russell, if he has an impulse, he trusts himself to do it. Like um, in Gothic, well, you haven't seen that yet, have you?
0: Oh yeah, that's one of the ones I've seen.
1: Okay, well, there's um, the breast eyeball thing uh, Mm -hmm. with when Claire suddenly her tops off, big surprise. (laughs) <laughs> and she's got, she's got her breasts out and she has eyeballs for nipples, which of course, Glenn Danzig stole, totally stole for Veronica. One of the things that Harlan Ellison said about um, that particular scene was that, yeah, okay, Ken Russell went there um, and I'm paraphrasing him, him of course, but um, he he put, you know, eyeballs on on, as nipples on this woman. And you think about it, is he gonna go that far? Yes, he will. One of the eyeballs winks. And that's Ken Russell. He doesn't self-censor himself. And I think that's one of the greatest thing, one of the things that makes him one of the greatest artists of the 20th century as a film director is that Either he's not willing or he's not capable of censoring his his impulses as a creative entity. He gives it all to you. What you do with it, what you perceive from it, he can't control that. But if he has a statement that he wants to make, he's going to make it. And that's one of the things that I admire the most about him as a filmmaker and about the devils is that I mean, really? Warner Brothers is too scared to release this film as a whole, license it to another house just because of the scene? I mean.
0: Well, that, and there's actually one more scene at the end that has been cut that is not in the uh, version that I sent to you.
1: Yeah. Um, But, you know, Solo, honestly, comparatively, is just as bad. Yeah. Or if not worse, you know, from the standpoint of like actual torture and and rape for that matter. So, you know, I think he's right up there with, you know, the greats like Pasolini, you know, in the pantheon, because it doesn't matter if people don't understand it. He's always going to be great. And this is always going to be a great film, even if it doesn't exist on a Blu-ray somewhere the legend of what it is might actually be greater than what the film's reality is at this point. Because people think, oh my God, the rape of Christ scene. Oh my gosh, oh, how shocking. Or they see the gifts that are out there of like specific scenes. You know, people's imaginations are much, more, what you can imagine is almost always, much more sensationalistic than what's actually on film <laughs> normally. Now, I guess you could argue that maybe in this case it isn't. It's actually like given this film like a legend where, you know, some, you know, Ken Russell is actually remembered for this film that most people can't even see the whole of than say something like Women in Love which he got, you know, Academy Award nominations
0: for. I uh, this is the rare case I think the reputation of a movie is pretty well deserved. Um, yeah,
1: but yeah, I mean, he, its basically kind of one of those legendary movies at this point,
0: where yeah. people,
1: like, oh my god!
0: And now that it's not on Shutter anymore, that it's harder and harder to see. Like,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: hopefully, Warner's licenses it. Hopefully, we get a good release of this movie. I think it deserves to be seen by a larger audience. Although, I mean, I think people that really want to see this movie will find a way. <laughs>
1: Oh, oh, they absolutely will. You know, like I said, I'm gonna eventually order the BFI Blu-ray and see what, you know, what's on it. Cause who knows where that rip came from. Maybe it's from the BFI Blu-ray. Because Mark Kermode, who's a big cheerleader for the film, um, he he's the one who, you know, arranged to like, you know, find the missing pieces and have them shown for the first time in Great Britain. No. So and that's and he's I'm per- pretty sure he's the one who you know got the source for the BFI um Blu-ray if it is a Blu-ray. No. But you could you imagine a 4K
0: <laughs> No.
1: <laughs> a 4K of this. Oh my gosh, yeah. I would cry.
0: It would be overwhelming.
1: <laughs> oh my god. And you know it it's it, I would a uh, uh, 4K restoration, I would be first in line. I would camp out to get the best seat. I would sit there. And I'm also going to tell you that this is a movie that makes me cry. Every time I get to the end and, you know, just the the conventional ending, I'm I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Oh, wow. It really just destroys me.
0: I can totally, I can see that. There is something so genuine about his relationship with Madeline and those scenes, with how loud and crazy the movie gets, those scenes... Are very quiet and lovely, and their conversations are so nice and profound. And we don't get a lot of them, uh, unfortunately, just because of the nature of the film. But they yeah. they are like a really nice welcome counterpoint, and it's clear that that relationship is probably like the most important thing in the movie. Well, With that's
1: all- a, that's that, that's my and that's my point is that it's so heartfelt that. Like I said, just the destruction of it, it just kills me. And, but, you know, in all this, the stroom and drang that, you know, everybody's shocked by this stuff. That's really the core of the film is that this this woman in this relationship with this woman made him into a better man who is willing to sacrifice himself to save the city even though he knew that would take him away from her. It was more important, you know, it, it was that, it was that, um, the thing that he was always looking for with his, um, his hedonistic and self-destructive actions. He, he was on a search for something true And he finally found it and he was willing to die for it. I mean, essentially, under normal circumstances, that would, in the Catholic religion, that would make you a saint. Yeah, You you sacrificed yourself. I mean, it's pretty much the same thing that, that, you know, why Joan of Arc is the same it's the same thing it's purity of belief and love and heart Man. and that's as what people the the what part of the mastery of Ken Russell's work is that he's able to disguise that true heart and you really have to look for it and find the you know that that heart that's hidden in the very center of the of the film
2: that's there's all
1: there's all the loudness around but there's always a very uh, humanistic and intelligent idea at the core and it makes me mad that people don't get it
0: <laughs> well that is that is great. I think that's a really good spot. Or that is great. I think that's a really good spot to end it. I really like how you you brought us to Like how genuine the heart of this movie is when, on the surface, it is so not that. Uh, that is great. I like. I love that you found like that that much heart in this movie, and it's certainly there. I I certainly wouldn't with you. I certainly get that. Yeah. Um, I I really like this movie i hope more people get a chance to see it i hope eventually we get to see the uncut version though if you have to watch the cut version um oh it's
1: still brilliant
0: it's still good yeah it's like you'll know listening to this if you haven't seen the movie what your uh (laughs) what your (laughs) temperaments and tastes are but uh
1: yeah i mean it it kind (laughs) of hopples the juxtaposition between um the scenes with grandier and his wife you know because it's meant to be like a very hard, uh, a hard shift from goodness to evil. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's it, it's meant to juxtapose the the purity of goodness within the human heart and love versus what evil really is. And taking that out, kind you know, I noticed it when I when I just watched it. Like, oh my God, they did hobble it a bit.
0: Yeah, you know, it, does. You, you it don't, does. you
1: don't get that juxtaposition and, and it, it's a shame. So I, I would, if you have the stomach for it and you really love art, um, <laughs> I, I would recommend that you watch it if you can because it, you're, you are missing something if you don't see it. I mean, it's still heartbreaking, but holy cow. Yeah,
0: well, well said, well said. All right. Uh, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back. We're going to, uh, go over some recommendations and say our goodbyes. So okay. with us. Okay. We're back. And before we say goodbye for the week, we're going to kind of just, have a little wrap-up discussion. We'll talk about a few recommendations, a few other things to check out if you enjoyed either of these movies. So so I'm going to start. I, I didn't bring a lot today. I just have a couple of movies I want to mention. Actually, I only have two movies I want to mention for this because this movie, when I was trying to figure out the tone of it, I, I felt eventually that it was kind of the middle point between two movies that also capture the this kind of absurd and grimy middle ages lifestyle or slice of life. I feel like the the movies that kind of go on either side of this are Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood. I I think this, this comes a little bit closer to Flesh and Blood although it certainly has like the absurdism that Monty Python has, especially in that stuffed crocodile fight. They both kind of revel in the griminess and how dirty life would be. And then of course, flesh and blood has the very complicated sexual dynamics.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: but that's it. That's, what, that's all I got today. What, if, what, if, what do you think people should check out after this?
1: Um, well, I think, yeah, I kind of already mentioned um, one of them, Michelle Franco's um, New Order. It's a, it's a foreign film international film, it, you know, it's in Spanish, it's set in Mexico. But if, if you liked it, I think thematically, it's uh, something that's uh, quite close to the basic idea. It, it is also transgressive with violence and nudity and uh, trigger warning for rape, although none of it's like specifically on camera or exploitative. Um, censor. Uh, Prano uh, Bailey Bond's new film, which is coming out in theaters and probably on on demand fairly soon afterwards. Uh, It it doesn't seem like it would be thematically connected, but it's a brilliant film. And it's, I believe it's kind of connected because um, it's about how our minds deal with reality and things that are unpleasant. So it's kind of connected in the way that how people are able to ignore horrible things that are around them or that they do willfully. Um, they're they're able to edit reality so that they don't see anything unpleasant. So I think it's it's connected on that level, you know, and also, you know, films like La Llorona from last year, um, Tigers Are Not Afraid, um, you know, about injustice, and um, Possessor, which is one of the most magnificent films of of the 21st century, which is also deals with identity, reality, and how we basically are, we're always acting. We're presenting ourselves as characters to other people. Very, you know, that and possessor and uh, sensor are very rooted in psychology, you know, and mental, the mental thing, the mental gymnastics that we engage in uh, to pretend that we're nice people.
0: <laughs> well, of the ones you mentioned, I've only seen Possessor and Tigers Are Not Afraid. I can vouch for those. I think they're both great. Possessor is really good. Uh, yeah, I, bottom
1: others, line, one of my most favorite films ever.
0: Oh, wow, wow. Uh, yeah, I,
1: I adore that film. I wrote like 3,000 words on it, <laughs> and no one paid me for it.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Well, the others that you mentioned, I'm really looking forward to those, too. I, I haven't heard a lot about Censor, just a little bit. Like the most I've heard about it actually is from you today, but um, I'm looking forward to that. And New World looks uh, looks interesting. I'll see if I have the stomach for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it, I mean, it's a beautiful film. I mean, you know, it makes like, of course, they're not real dead bodies, but dead bodies look like a painting. Oh, okay. And it, the sen- one of the centerpieces of the of the imagery is a is an actual painting called only the dead have seen the end of war. Beautifully, beautiful cinematography. I mean, it's, there's such ugliness, but it's go- it's also gorgeous. Um, and censor, oh uh, yeah, also, also beautiful. It has to do with video nasties, the phenomena from the eighties. Yeah. So I think that would really appeal to you if, you know, you like exploitation films and horror films, because, you know, they're, they're referencing stuff like Driller Killer, Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. Um, you know, all those the video nasties on the, you know, the UK list of films that were censored or banned. As um, the backdrop for one woman's trauma uh, having to do with her sister's disappearance. It's very, it's, it's really, it's really, for the first feature, it's, it's fantastic.
0: I'm really looking forward to it, actually. Uh, That sounds really good. Okay, so that's actually going to pretty much do it for us today. Do you have any, any place people can check you out? Anything you want to, you want to send people towards right now?
1: I uh, have a Medium blog, Dolores Quintana. Um, I write for Nightmarish Conjurings, and also I'm going to have a piece coming out in Fangoria uh, next week. It's an interview with uh, the author of Mexican Gothic, uh, Silvia Moreno-Garcia, and um, I have an interview on Nightmarish next week with um, Prano Bailey Bond and Neve Algar of Censor.
0: That's great. That's great. We'll put links up too when this comes out. Uh, this some of that's going to be out by the time this episode drops, but we'll we'll put links out for people to check it out. This has been really great. I'm sorry this took so long to put together, but it was great having you on. We we'll have to uh, we we'll to talk to you this again sometime. You're welcome back whenever you want.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. this. Is actually like I've been on radio before, but this is my first first like podcast appearance, and it, it's just a real joy to talk with you and you know, kind of bounce ideas and interpretations uh, off your thing. I really respect your opinions, and, and it's you. just absolutely fun. A blast to, to speak with you in depth about film. So I love it. I would come back anytime.
0: Well, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk off air. But thank you very okay. much. No, this was a lot of fun. I really liked your insights on these movies. This was, this was great. Um, but we're going to have to say goodbye now. So uh, as for Thanks. us, Two-Headed Podcast, incredible Two-Headed Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at 2 headed Pod. There's also a Gmail, 2 Pod at gmail.com. And a Facebook page. I, 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 the one I update the most is Twitter, and I've got to get better at social media, but drop us a line. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe. We're available wherever you get podcasts, and reviews do help. And that'll do it. That'll do it for us here. I will see you all next week with a brand new, incredible Two-Headed Podcast.